0: This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to In Class with Carr, Dr. Gray Carr, 72nd episode. We are here, and let me say good morning to you, and good afternoon, my brother
1: happy Saturday happy weekend it's always good to see you professor good to see you sister love you and narrative continues to grow how
0: I feel like you know uh, the work is never ending but it also um Tanya Pink has put up she's like watching us she feels so sad at what she doesn't know she's very well read she's like I'm one of the most well read people I know and I still don't know anything and I'm like I'm excited because every time you drop a breadcrumb I go on this journey and then I'm like okay. What else? And then it takes me down rabbit holes. And now I'm like, okay, once we do this, it'll be here forever. So I'm excited because future generations are going to benefit from your genius. So
1: uh, from, from our collective genius, from your genius, mine, tiny everyone listening, sharing the folks who are having comments and having whole conversations and narrative and everyone commenting in the, uh, in the live chat today, everything and all of that because we are all we all have that feeling. The more that I read, the more I study, I think we all have that experience, the more we know that we don't know and the more we want to know and the more we want to do something, which reading and studying and having these conversations is doing something. People make an artificial distinction between, well, oh, I see we reading, y'all talking about history, but when we're we gonna do something, that is doing something. So we are doing something together and we all have that feeling.
0: You know, what's, what's crazy about you, um you just like throw something out that you, that, you know, and then I'm, I like go read the book and I'm like, Hey, Hey, did you realize that this, and, and it'll tie in per, and I'm like, did he just know I'll bring up something? You just look around and then there'll be a literal book and you ain't know we were going to talk about it. So I, I do believe that, you know, all of this is ordained and it is uh, divine providence, but there's something really special about you. So I just want you to just bask in that. Don't even don't push back. I
1: won't say I just I, I will. Uh, let Can we let's share with the people just for we went live on this conversation. Uh, you brought up a, a date and oh. the ancestors made sure I had a couple of things right in reach
0: today July 24th and I was reading you know I'm just scanning and this on this day four of the nine uh Scottsboro boys the state of Alabama dropped the charges uh against four of the nine young men uh, accused of raping those two women on that train uh, car and uh, you looked around and you're like oh
1: Wait, I got a book. <laughs> yeah, right, right up there in the corner. I Just just a couple. And there are a lot of books on Scottsboro. But these two, this is one of the earlier ones that was done by Dan Carter. It's called Scottsboro, A Tragedy of the American South. And um, Louisiana State University Press. And, you know, we, we mentioned a lot of books. We talk about a lot of books. But this one just happened to be close. Uh, I like it because it's a narrative and um, it has a lot of, doc. well, it, it talks about the documents. It's an older book. But um, interesting enough, First, the, two of the first books written by Scottsboro were by so-called native Alabamians, of course, you know, Carter. Um, Scottsboro, the firebrand of communism, which is interesting because, you know, the Communist Party was uh, well, in the United States. They supported the freeing of Scottsboro Boys and they provided resources. And we're going to talk in a minute about what happens when resources come from outside the Black community. In fact, in a kind of a in a different lens but a similar relationship you remember richard wright native son both white lawyers i mean bigger thomas's defense team i mean you bring in the specter of the communists Why? because the black lawyers wouldn't you know i'm not defending a, a a bigger thomas character i mean there's a class tension even in the black community if you look at uh, charles Hamilton houston thurgood marshall there's a book called devil in the grove I mean, we talk, you know, on the narrative side. If you uh, watch our conversation when it's up on Polly Murray, the great Polly Murray, we understand that they were organizing around a brother who uh, killed the white man who he was sharecropping from because the guy had been engaged in theft of his stuff. And uh, Polly Murray and them were organizing, but he was a sharecropper. So Charles Houston and there but there's a class tension. But I bring that up because. A lot of those early books on Scottsboro Boys are really attempts to get at the Communist Party. So you see from that side. Now, on the other side of the ledger, and this is where my friend Robin Kelly did his doctoral dissertation on this, and actually one of his first but I think it was his first book, actually, uh, called Hammer and Ho. You have Black folk in Alabama and in the South who are drawn to the politics of the Communist Party, because it's a working class, it's, it's emphasizing the working class is working in tensions between the laborers and the owners of the so-called like, means of production is what they would call it, the capitalist class. And that doesn't mean they're communists, but it does mean they'll accept uh, assistance from anyone in their struggle. Now, those of, those of us remember the movie, The Great Debaters, where you see uh, Melvin Tolson, the great poet, uh, Port Harlem Gallery, I'm out, out of port, but Denzel Washington's character, and remember, the young James Farmer Jr. follows him one night into a meeting where there are black farmers and white farmers because they are all accused of being communists. They're trying to put their co-op together. They're trying to build collectively. And so that kind of interracial cooperation in the South, really in the United States often, they will accuse those people of being communists. And in the case of Scottsboro, you see the American Communist Party you know, come and say, we want to support. you got to free the Scottsboro boys, even as the NAACP and others, because remember, they are accused of rape raping white women. So you see the higher up you go in the, in the black social class, the more you see some ambiguity. I don't know. I mean, yeah, we, they shouldn't be put away. Are you sure they didn't? I mean, oh, really? We're gonna have that kind of respectability politics? Kind of just jump in. And finally, if you read Rosa Parks, all of her memoirs from the children's books to uh, the, the other books that she wrote to the people who have written about her, including uh, Jeannie Theodore Harris, um, her book, The Rebellious Life of Rosa, Ms. Rosa Parks. Rosa and Raymond Parks raised money for the Scottsboro Boys in the 30s. And Ms. Parks talks about when they had a meetings in her house there in the kitchen, everybody get in there. The first thing they did before they started the formal meeting, everybody pull their guns out and put them on the table just to have them ready in case somebody tried to come in and break up the meeting. We had to blast our way out of here. I mean, we don't think about it, but it's the Scottsboro Boys, they're raising money. So yeah, that, that's one. And then the other one that I just had right there, Remembering Scottsboro. The Legacy of an Infamous Trial. This is James Miller's book. James Miller, uh, good brother, was at George Washington University. He was at George Washington University, remembering Scottsboro. Because Scottsboro has its own mythologies. Scottsboro has its own legends. And there may be one or two people today who are saying, Scottsboro. What is Scottsboro? Well, that's just a breadcrumb. Go look up Scottsboro, Alabama in the early 1930s and, and, look, and, and find out what happened in Scottsboro. But since we, since we mentioned Alabama, she probably shout out the governor of Alabama, Kay Ivey. Saw her yesterday, Friday, I was scrolling, and I saw her uh, uh, being interviewed and she, I, I can't do nothing else. You think people would do what they need to do? Because uh, uh, the reporter was asking her, what else can you do? Because the COVID infection rate is going up. The Delta variant is serious down here. Well, I can't do nothing else. You think people would act like they had common sense? You've done quite enough, K. You banned the requirement in restaurants that people put on masks. You lifted the mask mandate, K, K, K. Come on, K. Come on, K. Raised up there in the soil where y'all tried to, to 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 kill the Scottsboro boys. You did quite enough, you white nationalists. Now your people are dying and you scared as hell. And all you poor white people who was listening to K Ivy, look how she threw you under the bus. Okay, do nothing if they don't want to do it. They, you are they, they elected you. You you know, so I'm, I'm saying that mentality, that race can blind you to even your own interests. That mentality means that all of the people who are unvaccinated, getting caught up. and all of the people who are, getting, uh, who are not vaccinated, who are not white, are also getting caught up, and all of us who have been vaccinated who are not immune from the virus who may be asymptomatic or get slightly ill and accidentally pass it to somebody who hasn't been vaccinated, you're all at risk. The reason the Scottsboro boys were uh, just, you know, y'all gonna look up Scottsboro, but just know that they were on a railroad car. Hoborn is how you got around from place to place. If you didn't have no money and these white girls were on their hobo car with these black boys and black men and white men, and everybody else, everybody, it's an inner, (laughs) When you ain't got no money, that's an interracial democracy of no money together. (laughs) But when it came time to throw them cats off the train, the white girls, I'm not going down. I mean, you know, but in that moment, they were all together. And we're all together in Alabama, victim possibly of a virus because the governor, you know, she played the race card. But now a lot of her people got the race card in it. So, I mean, wait, is there another, there's another Alabama story, huh? We got another one that we coming up on the anniversary of, I think.
0: What is that, sir?
1: <laughs> well, this is this is someone from <laughs> like one of your me. areas of practice, journalists. I think this is the weekend that the Washington Star broke the Tuskegee experiment story.
0: Yeah, we're, gonna, we're gonna talk about that later. We got a guest coming in. And oh, I good. got some insight into that too. So um since you talk about the communists, that's why I popped in. Yes, we have a guest coming in soon. Uh and I just want to get your shirt for a second, the African American oh, yeah uh national monument new york city so i was asking i was like what is the other spots oh yeah it looks
1: like it's spots right
0: i was like i just want to make sure y'all he ain't got on a dirty shirt so no
1: no 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 dirty shirt in fact yeah shout out to my man ranger jimmy cleckley and all the women and men of the national park service who are the guardians at that site every fall we take the freshman class of howard university there i hope we'll be able to do it but of course safety first we probably won't be able to do it again this fall, we usually go in October, September, October, uh, because for 10 years, uh, the the physical remains of the Africans who were buried there, 419 of them uh, were housed at Howard University for safekeeping and for research purposes. And then we had an elaborate, we talked about that in class. I mean, if y'all go back and look through the narrative site, you'll see our conversation about how uh, we, and I was present for that at the Howard University Rankin Chapel, where they brought in, they carved 419 caskets in West Africa, lined them with Kente, transported them to the United States, and those caskets began the journey at Howard University where the faculty of Howard who were in there, my man Mark Mack, who's an ancestor now, Michael Blakey, the great Fatima Jackson, and their students, mostly undergraduate students, dressed in black, they, they carefully prepared the, the, the bodies, put them in the coffins, the remains, and then took them over to the chapel. And then they began the journey from there all the way up to East Coast. A lot of New Yorkers and New Jersey folk came down to DC. A lot of those elders and ancestors who are now ancestors now sitting in the chapel. We poured libation, poetry, dance, and then city by city, Baltimore, Newark, Trenton, Philly, all the way, and then sacred sites in each of those places, Mother Bethel in Philly, for example, can't keep going. Princeton, get to Trenton, then got to Jersey City, sailed those caskets across the Hudson to lower Manhattan, danced and drummed all night. And then the next day, huge ceremony. Maya Angelou, Cicely Tyson, Delroy Lindo. It was incredible. Thousands of people. And then we put them in the ground. So we go up there every year to remember that. And New York African Burial Ground, this is one of their uh, shirts. And underneath this, the little black spot you see, that's really scripts and writing from some of the records uh, that were kept of the burial ground and the map of the burial ground. So, when you go down to the mayor's, uh, Eric Adams, when you sworn in and you go into City Hall, if you're watching Law Order and you see them come, the lawyers coming out of the courthouse, 1PP, police plaza, all of that is built on top of the burial ground of African people. All of that, we were buried there. So, you (laughs) wonder.
0: Eric Adams didn't win yet, Curtis Lee
1: Walken. Well, oh, oh, yeah, that's absolutely right. Well,. I'm
0: just saying they they had Giuliani as mayor at some point. So uh, they, they did. they did. It could happen. I'm just and, and sh-
1: just and shout out to the Haitian to the sisters in Brooklyn who swear that because of Giuliani, who he was and how he got there, uh, that's one of the reasons he had that that health scare. Uh, okay. I heard that in the streets of Brooklyn many times, and so we put that on Giuliani. Don't even worry about him being a senator. Remember, he ran against Hillary Clinton, but then he had to withdraw because he had some health problems. The Haitians was like, "Yeah, we got that. It's all good." but uh, so, <laughs> no all
0: right. So, um, this week was interesting. We, you know, Whitey went to the moon.
1: Um, shout out to just Well, he uh, he touched the lip of the atmosphere and then came back down, riding that crotch rocket or whatever that was. Oh my goodness! Can Johnny you be any more obvious? Listen, uh,
0: <laughs> all right. So he went to the upper atmosphere, as Michael Harry would say, upper air, upper
1: upper, upper air. <laughs> that's right. That's right.
0: <laughs> but after he came back down, he went and gave out two hundred million dollars. Yeah. 100 million to Chef Andres, who has been feeding the world uh, through tragedy and uh, natural disasters, hurricanes, pandemics. Uh, he's been doing an amazing job going everywhere from Puerto Rico, hither and yon, to make sure that people ate, uh, that they were eating um, in this world. And I appreciate that. And then he gave $100 million to Van Jones.
1: Mm-hmm. That's what they say.
0: That's what, okay. So what, what are your thoughts?
1: I mean, I don't know. I wasn't in the room. I don't know the conversation, but I think we've all watched enough uh, WWF wrestling and reality TV to know that that's not necessarily how it happened. But then again, he probably, Jeff Bezos probably, his people probably spent a hundred million dollars on croissants the morning of the lunch. So, I mean, it's not even no money. Right. Um, and so, well, So let's walk through that. If, if so You know how you have telethons
0: and they pledge you, you could pledge and then you never have to give the money because I've seen that, right? People pledge money, you know, they show up with a big check and then maybe it comes and maybe it doesn't. But what would be the the benefit of pledging 100 million to do whatever you want with? Because there were no, no limits on it, you know, and I looked at it as kind of like a, a slap at Mackenzie Scott, who's been giving away half his money to everybody. Right. Well, you know, she has a vetting process. I know several people have gotten checks from Mackenzie Scott, several yep. corporations and black, like Black Girls Code and, and others who have gotten millions of dollars. But there's a vetting process that they go through to, to receive the money. Um, He said, no, no limits. Do whatever you want with it. $100 million mm-hmm. each.
1: Well, I mean, I think the only limit that he announced, and again, we don't know whether they both had to or one of them had to submit a list of places they were thinking about before they got the surprise announcement again. I mean, you know, but we heard the one limit he imposed before he announced who it was. It's very subtle when he's sitting there in his beat up cowboy hat with his cowboy pose. I'm saying this guy really looks like Yosemite Sam. But when he said, you know, we can have any debate we want, but we should be civil. Okay, so your one requirement is. Y'all don't get too loud. Mm. So, so you're right. I mean, so he, but, he, but it was very, very subtle. That's the first thing he said before he said, you know, now let me, oh, I thought there was a slide here with the people's pictures. In other words, you done prep for this, Jeff. But he said, we don't have to agree, but we can be civil. No, I think we have to agree in your vision, Jeff, because who you gave the money to tells us how you're going to try to shape this. And I agree with you because it's no money, And by that, I mean, when I, I mean like literally no money. The first quarter of this year, January, February, March, Amazon saw a 40% jump in its North American sales to $8.1 billion. Mackenzie Scott, all the money she gave away last summer and is giving away, she's made more money back just on the value of the stock. So think about this, y'all. You can't give it away fast enough. You're giving out checks and then you look looking at how much we got left. Wait, we got more than before I just gave this out? Okay, let me give some more. How much we got left? Wait, wait we got more than we got Let me just keep talking. All right, now, now what? Wait, damn, we got more. Why? Because she's not giving away money. Every time you hit Amazon Prime, every time one of these drivers out here damn near has an accident because she got to get her packages in before they dock her pay before 8 p.m., Every time somebody in a plant in a place like Alabama is peeing in a bottle and they mean, Jeff Bezos had the nerve to thank his employees for paying for the ride. So yeah, that little nickel he gave away, I agree with you. It may have been just because he at his wife and he got two avatars, two non-white male avatars to say, now, now what? But either way, his condition, civility. And that is right in the line of white philanthropy capitalism in this country. The subtle suggestion that I'm gonna guide you, you can do what you want. I'm just, but I'm I'm just gonna give you a little poop. and that's just enough money to have you come back and ask for some more,
0: or to sit your ass down and never challenge me. So I I was thinking about well, that. But
1: they already auditioned for that. Okay, I mean, in other okay. words, he would. That's my they, point. You, they, you they give it to them because you, yeah, you reward it. Well, Mm,
0: well, Chef Andres, I believe, is in a in a agnostic space of feeding well, people. That, yeah,
1: everybody got to eat,
0: right? So there's no there's no political. Well, I think people politicize everything, but you know there's there's nothing political about feeding people.
1: Well, as Bob Marley once said, them belly full, but we hungry." Meaning what? Is <laughs> it, food is the most political thing of all? Well, maybe not air. I should mention this while I'm thinking about it. And water. In fact, oh man, I wish I, I thought I had it here. There was a quote I wanted to read you from the Finan- Oh yeah, Financial Times. Uh, earlier this week, they had a long article in Financial Times on what they're calling now natural capitalism. Natural ca- You're gonna love this quote. It's like a thirty second thing. This is the whole article. It's about the country of Gabon, in West Africa. Most of Gabon is rainforest. It's part of a larger rainforest through Central Africa that they call the Lungs of Africa. Gabon, the pollution around the world, Gabon, their trees are absorbing it and recycling it. Last thing, because Gabon now has said, we're going to convert this to money. So if you've got carbon credits in all these countries where you you reached a deal, Paris Climate Accord, whatever, Gabon is saying, now you pay us to maintain this forest. Here's the quote from the guy who's leading this in Gabon. He says... uh, Gauma Bakali at the National Climate Council puts this initiative differently, because now they're saying, well, y'all going to try to blackmail us. This is what the Gabonese said. The question is for the people in New York and London, who produce all the carbon, but who can still breathe because of the forests of Africa, he says. If you people put in just a dollar a year each, you will still be able to breathe. Now, <laughs> so, oh. even air is political, you <laughs> Wait a minute. what? these Africans flip
0: the script <laughs> all my life, I've been hearing about the Amazon rainforest. Mm-hmm. I'm today years old, learning that Africa has been filtering the 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 air for the rest of the world.
1: that's exactly right. And well, the Amazon is right there with that belly of Africa forest. However, Yeah, they already started burning. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. In fact, this is for the first time, shout out to the Trump of uh, Brazil, their president. For the first time, Bolsonaro, for the first time, the Amazon forest is a net producer of emitting uh, greenhouse gas effect emittances For the first time, that's how much they're burning it. But what they're doing now in Africa, particularly Gabon is leading the way no, don't touch the trees. In fact, recycle the tree. They just planted a couple million trees in Ghana, which is and nothing.
0: Ethiopia, Ethiopia planted a million trees
1: too. Ethiopia planted a million trees as well, following in the lead of the sister who won the Nobel Prize a couple of decades ago, who was out of Kenya, or, uh, Wangari Mathai, who won please, the Nobel please, Prize. Wait, you're
0: yeah. saying, I, I just want to reiterate this. Um, Africans understand the relationship between human beings and the earth, so much so, that they are proactively saving the world once again.
1: Yes, but it's going to cost you, which leads us back to <laughs> Bezos. Okay. Meaning what? Because the way of knowing is there. The way of knowing is there. But what's not there <sighs> is the change in the political economy, the the change in the social structure that those kind of ways of knowing can trigger. So again, just you know, right? Quick, we look at our African states framework, and if you ask in the social structure, who are Africans to other people? For the rest of the world, the so-called Western world, the global North, China, Africa is a place to extract some more resources from there. You came and got us, and then you started coming and get the natural resources. Now you're gonna come back, except this time the Africans are like, hmm, (laughs) stop, (laughs) what are you doing? Uh, You're gonna pay us, but that is a mixed bag because in the governance structure, who are Africans to each other, there are no good guys. You got uh, black elites who have been stealing for years. You got, you know, black capitalists. You got the sister uh, who in Angola whose daddy, Dos Santos, was the uh, president for many years. She was considered the richest woman in Africa. She Hightailing it back and forth between Angola and Portugal, you know Angola is one of the most expensive countries in the world because you got Texas oilmen and all this kind of stuff posted up Angola stealing with both hands. So it's a mixed bag because what we have to understand is going to ways of knowing our third category. How do we look at the world? This type of understanding of nature is necessary to. Number one, get the governance structure together. So in other words, we got to wean ourselves off capitalism and think collectively, and then change this world system we're in, the social structure. And that's where you see a guy like Bezos. Yeah, you give $100 million to Jose Andres. Yeah, that looks great on the surface, and it is great. But what Jeff Bezos basically did, he, had a comm- he, he put on a commercial. He came out his rocket and made a commercial for Amazon. Cause you still union busting, you still, but you get this money to this chef who's doing all this unmitigated great work. And you say, okay, this. Is it. then you give it to Van Jones who you don't ever have to worry about offending you because Van Jones is going to be on every side of the issue. And if it just, when it looks like everybody's on one side Van will shed a tear Infuriate everyone, and Jeff Bezos said it's the best hundred million dollar ad I ever spent. Now, that is reminiscent of investor capitalism, of an investor philanthropy. He's investing, in addition to having an ad. And there's a history to that. There's a history to that. I mean, if you look, in fact, let's a couple of books because you know we're going we're going to keep this one tight today. So if you all go look at the work of uh, Juliet Walker, for example. Julia E.K. Walker, she did a book on the history of Black businesses in America, which is good because it takes you back to just after enslavement. Because you see Black folk in the United States trying through the governance structure to create our own businesses, our own collectives. And in fact, uh, if you pair that book with Jessica uh, uh, Newhart's book, uh, Collective Courage, you look at the fact that Black folk have been trying to build cooperatives. We've been doing cooperative education, uh, cooperative cooperative economic building, for uh, many years. And she takes it back to the mutual aid societies, the free African society, for example, in Philadelphia, in the late 18th century, you know, Richard and Sarah Allen and them, Morris Brown and all that. I mean, you know, we have to bury ourselves. We have to acquire property ourselves. We have to, and we're not doing it so we can have two or three rich people turn around and say, hey, everybody be like me. That's this model today, all that BS. No, we are advancing as a group, as a race. And so, They used that economic platform for political advocacy. And then during the Civil War, you have a moment, and we talked about this many times, when this country, the United States, could have, by transferring the land from the enslavers to the enslaved, formerly enslaved, radically transformed the project. They didn't. Which is why this country is going to come apart at some point, because that was the moment you had. It wasn't 1776, it was 1861 to 65, and then Reconstruction. You failed. And now the bill is coming due again. But after that, Black folks still pool their resources and continue to work forward. And here's where you see the white philanthropists come in, via James Anderson's book, The Education of Blacks in the South, uh, William Watkins' book, uh, The White Architects of Black Education, Um, I'll mention those two because those are two I use in my Education in Black America class that I teach in the fall semesters at Howard. You see white philanthropists. They make themselves philanthropists. But they really are, many of them, what we might call now the robber barons. That's when you're going to see Rockefeller show up. But then you see Andrew Carnegie. You see the railroad barons, Louis Baldwin. These cats come together and they say, these Negroes that used to be enslaved, they're a labor force. They are a labor force. They are no longer enslaved. So how do we cultivate this labor force to advance our interests? These are capitalists. At the same time, this is when they're saying some things like, how can we use the 14th Amendment to advance our interests? Understand the 14th Amendment is supposed to guarantee equal protection and due process under the law, American Constitution. But the first cases that make it to the Supreme Court to, to, on 14th Amendment disputes include eminent domain cases, where the railroads are like, look, we corporation is a person, to quote Mitt Romney years later. Corporations are people, my friend. And as a person, I have rights. And under the 14th Amendment, my economic interest, which is also a state interest, is to expand this railroad so we can keep doing business. And ultimately, by the time you get to Plessy versus Ferguson, which was a case involving buses. No, 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 public facilities, bathrooms. No, 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 no. Hamburgers. Oh, oh, yeah, the railroad. Most of the justices on the Supreme Court started out their legal careers railroad lawyers. So separate but equal is good for business. So when you read Plessy versus Ferguson as a business case, they're saying, look, don't disrupt business. In fact, that's why to this day, civil rights cases that have made the most progress during the 50s and 60s involved the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. In other words, what happens when you have a conflict between states, Morgan versus Virginia, <laughs> Irene Morgan coming into Virginia from Baltimore, headed south, and then headed back to Maryland, and you've got conflicts in the segregation laws. What happens when you have uh, Boynton versus Virginia, young Boynton trying to get home, and we talked about Amelia Boynton Robinson, her son at Howard Law School, where boy coming in who just made transition, coming in to Virginia. It's conflicts between state segregation laws, and that's what the Supreme Court says they can use as the point of entry, because now you've got conflicts between the two states, and the federal government resolves that. The courts say what the Constitution is, but their point of entry is the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Clause. Heart of Atlanta Motel versus, you know, Heart of Atlanta Motel is about public facilities, and people are saying, this is just in Atlanta. You ain't gotta work. No, because people travel to Georgia from different parts of the country. So now it's federal and we're going to use the commerce clause. Even civil rights in this country get read through business. It's bad for business. This is why the boycott is a very effective tool. Bringing us back then to Jeff Bezos. Bezos is stealing with both fists. He's actually not stealing. We're giving him the money. Every time you subscribe to Amazon Prime, right? Every time you look on, you know, Amazon video, we're all giving him the money. He's keeping the value, giving it to stockholders. He's out the game directly, but just like Carnegie, just like those railroad marons in the late 19th century, they're saying, we got to manage this labor force. And last summer, they were in the street. We shot up Breonna Taylor in her home. We killed George Floyd in front of everybody. Who is we? Well, I didn't. Bezos, I didn't do that when y'all were trying to have a, or that union in Atlanta, I'm sorry, in Alabama, that Amazon union, and Amazon then bought out the local town police and everybody else, so they don't have to have security guards that they pay because they have put so much money into, relatively speaking, the little town that the local police will make sure that ain't nothing nothing go on too tour troy- You done bought the police. In other words, so when I say we, I do mean we, the function of the police is to protect this upper class. It just so happens that in many places in this country, that lower class is black. And the businesses, and the businesses, businesses. right. Right, people worried about destruction of public property, (laughs) uh, private property. You destroy property doesn't die, we die. That's exactly right. But last year, it looked like, wait a minute. Are they getting ready to renegotiate the terms? So every company with $5 gave 50 cent to diversity equity training. They was going out giving money to anybody who would come and get on Zoom and tell them, look, this is how you be polite. These are trigger language. This is the rise of the whole discussion, you know, this and all the arguments. A year later, the cat seems like it's not quite back in the bag, but you've at least sedated the cat a little bit. And Bezos gonna sprinkle a little money on it as well. Why? I'm gonna show, I'm signaling to y'all, in addition to good ad money for me, in addition to washing my union busting sins and I'm not paying my workers sins in philanthropy. That's another reason people are doing this. I'm also going to gently nudge the people who will turn down the temperature. And that's not a critique of, of Van Jones. I, I really couldn't, you know, Van Jones, my brother go way back. They had a newspaper in Nashville called the third eye when they were in undergraduate. Our brother was Tennessee state, Van Jones was at Vanderbilt. I know Van Jones a very long time, you know? And so I'm not even mad at Van Jones because it's not about an individual.
0: And let's let's pause there on the Newspaper because he mm-hmm. owns the Washington
1: Post. One hundred fifty billion dollars acquired in twenty thirteen, quarter billion dollars, and it loses money. So people need to understand why
0: a person like that would own a newspaper outlet, and how you get to shape. You know, as a as a journalist for a number of years, I recognize and on the editorial page the power of of shaping people's opinions around right. topics right so we're not getting unvarnished truth in any of these newspapers except for maybe The Wall Street Journal in some spaces the Financial Times because those uh-huh. are, those are commerce driven which is why the only thing I watch on television right now in terms of cable is CNBC because I now <laughs> I'm gonna follow the money you got to follow where the dollars are being spent what they're talking about and how they right. how they're moving with the money because that's really the the crux of this this criminal enterprise that we're in right it's all... Right. So we got to know it, but he bought a newspaper because not because he loves journalism, you know, so I just want to say that. No, no, no.
1: I'm glad. I'm glad you raised that because that's exactly right. You're controlling public discourse and you're not controlling discourse. For example, most of us in this conversation Maybe don't read the Washington Post every day, or the New York Times, or the Financial Times, or any of those sites. Or maybe we just glance at some of the things. We turn on social media, click through the Twitter feed, see what's trending, or go to Facebook. Some of y'all go to Facebook, look at that. Okay, but the people who do read it, the policymakers, which is why they give away the hill here in D.C. <laughs> they give away Politico in D.C. because that's the that's the shorthand. You know, Congress people not reading all that legislation, but they're gonna read they're gonna read the gossip tally and then make decisions and see where the trends are going you're basically controlling that manager class or you're informing them so yeah bezos i mean so let's wrap this up right quick so but he has a precedent in that investor philanthropy in other words people who are at the top of the capitalist food chain trying to influence the whole system it didn't start with the coke brothers you read jane mayer's book you know dark money it didn't start with them it didn't even start if you go a generation back with the ford foundation go look up george mc i'm um, sorry mcbundy george mcbundy george is an interesting character because in fact i have my law students talk about him a lot i'm sorry mcgeorge bundy is his name mcgeorge bundy was the head of the national he was the national security council advisor under kennedy and then johnson uh he was one of the architects of the vietnam war he was at the table when they when the bay of pigs went down he was at the ta- bay, he was at the table figuring out the cuban missile crisis but then him and Johnson split. They all argue about Vietnam, these Dons that got all our people over there dying. McBundy leaves, and in 1966, he takes over the chairship of the Ford Foundation. There's a very good book called Top Down: The Ford Foundation, Black Power, and the Reinvention of Racial Liberalism. See, this is what foundations do, and that's not a, you know, right now, the last few years i just
0: looked up mcgeorge bundy he lived to be 102 that's a long time no question f up up a country
1: (laughs) so for a long time for a lot of black people to die at 19 20 21 to come back crazy at 21 22 to never get it quite right you killed all them people and then you lived a century and two years that's exactly right his friend who he used to work for when they were at yale uh, Kingman Brewster was the president of Yale, Kingman Brewster reaches out to McBundy in the late 60s and said after Dr. King was killed, the Ford Foundation and all these other foundations start giving out money. But they're not giving out money for independent Black economic uh, advancement, collective, cooperative stuff, the kind of thing we talk about in those books that we, I just mentioned. They give it, they shift it from Black power to economic opportunity. This is the phrase. Economic opportunity. So even when Van was saying we're gonna wipe out poverty, we're, nah, bro, you gonna see, you gonna give a little seed money to entrepreneurship, and this is how you get a skill, and you can flip that and buy your own house on your. We are not going to transform this political economy, this society, this social structure, as uh, as, as successful individuals. That is, philanthropy capitalism is built on successful individualism. When you read, uh, um, when you read uh, James Anderson's Education of Blacks in the South, and there are a lot of other books that drill deeper, but I like Anderson, because Anderson shows us that after the Civil War, these white philanthropists said, or these white capitalists, I keep calling them philanthropists, these white capitalists say, in order to keep this labor force in line, they're going to need a certain form of education. What kind of education are they going to need to have? And you know what they start doing? They start planning what they call Negro education. Now, they've got another population that they're also concerned about that they're planning education for too. And we see now, whether it be in Canada, whether it be in the United States, when they are digging up these mass graves for these first nations folk who have been slaughtered, these children who've been killed, that's when they set up the reservation schools too, the Indian reservation schools. Case study, 30 seconds, Everybody's heard of this place, starts as a place to educate Native Americans, very quickly brings in Negroes, and then it converts. Now it's almost all black. That is a place in Virginia called Hampton Institute. Samuel Chapman Armstrong, Civil War general, is the one that says, you Negroes, you Indians, this is what we gonna do. Give you a Bible, cut your hair, make you work like hell, painting, farming, all this stuff. And uh, remember what Jesus said the whole time. He's not teaching people how to... The, student, the Black students start writing home revolting. I came here to learn math. You got me painting fences nine hours a day. In other words, they just came out of slavery and realized they saw the trick. Now his friend, Oliver Otis Howard, another Civil War general, is in DC saying they need teachers and preachers. <laughs> so how University is set up with teachers and preachers. How do we create a class to manage the rest of these Negroes? And I had the best intent. OK, no problem. But you still want to shape what we have, and this is where we're going to come finally with Bezos and, and Van over the years. These debates continue They meet in a place called Capen Springs West Virginia their discussion Negro, Indian education Negro education then they go to Lake Mohawk, New York Asa Hill used to always talk about this Jacob Cruz used to talk about this go get this little volume called the Lake Mohawk Conference on the Negro, you know the one thing that was not allowed to attend either of those sets of conferences Native Americans and Blacks. This is not your business. We are planning your curriculum. We are planning your education, and so and then we're going to give money to shape it. Look at the curriculum, and then of course they they can't do it, naked white people. but you've given the money, people say, "Okay, I'm we're going to take this girls' college out of the basement of this church in Atlanta, put it over here, get a few buildings, buy these buildings for these people. We're going to put it together. And since you gave the money, Rockefeller, we're going to name it for your wife, Laura." Spellman Rockefeller and since the you know, American Baptist home people put the money together We we like Henry Morehouse Morehouse College, you know, we know General Howard and this kind of thing, but here's the thing You can't keep running these old white men out So what do they do? They elevate one of the graduates of this system a young brother who came out of enslavement who walked into Hampton and got his education Booker Taliaferro, Washington so pass through Philanthropy, and I think you tweeted something. You made that connection, didn't you, Professor (laughs) Hunter?
0: Ask the question. You know, I, I ask questions. I'm, you know, that's what journalists. We're Socratic. I said, is Van Jones is Van Jones this generation's Booker T. Washington? Because I know that he too, uh, made folk comfortable. Yes. He was not about, you know, shaking up anything because I often wonder how you could have a whole ass university of educating black people in the middle of this segregate this vigilant racism <laughs> It was like, how do you how are you able to survive that and I was like well he must have been comfortable people must have been okay knowing that he wouldn't really upset the apple cart but so much and i was hoping maybe he was playing a game i love i love booker t washington i I won't sit here and defile him me too but i asked the question and people were like why are you doing that to booker t washington van jones is not a booker t washington so i I just asked the question so i want to
1: know what you think no very quickly i would say this i I like him too but i think had i known him i wouldn't like him the man (laughs) who is looking at us from your shirt. The great George Carver, the great George Washington Carver out of Iowa. You know, the man who was castrated as a child, the man who came out of enslavement, the man one of the most brilliant minds produced in the world in the late 19th century. A man who understood science so powerfully that he was able to literally tap into that science technology of Africana Carver will rise before dawn and go out. They said, how do you know this? I mean, you have a master's in chemistry. I mean, you're one of the great trained scientists in the country. But how did you know that this plant could do all that? He said, the plants told me. I walked out here and they told me what they could do. He said, this guy's a mystic. No, no, I'm in tune. So you can't can't understand George Washington Carver from Western lenses. You got to come into Africana ways of knowing, Africana science and technology. And in terms of movement and memory, All these children that graduate from George Washington Carver Elementary schools and high schools, that's because we said, this is man, And he wasn't offensive to white people because he was so grounded in who he was that even arch captives, talk about a Ford Foundation, Henry Ford was his friend. Henry Ford, in fact, I, I forget the name of the book. I have it over here on George Washington Carver, one of the most recent books on Carver. The lady that wrote it said, you know, there's speculation that the reason Henry Ford named his automobile manufacturing centers plants, because think about it, what does a plant got to do with a Model T? It's because his friendship with Carver, and remember, Carver figured out a way to make plastics. Carver figured out a way, but Ford is picking his brain, his correspondence between Carver, but here's the point Carver worked at Tuskegee, which means he worked for Booker Washington. And Carver wanted to revolutionize the use of fertilizer and agricultural techniques. He had a mobile agricultural unit that went throughout helping these farmers. He said, because our job is to help what Booker Washington called the man farthest down, Robert Parkingham. So at the same time that Carver is this great value added, Washington is involved in a complex political game of cat and mouse with these white philanthropists because he got to keep the money flowing. So he's getting the money. He's telling darky jokes, picking up checks. That's why Monroe Trotter and him went after him in Boston, in the so-called Boston riot. He said, Monroe Trotter said, you ain't telling no darky jokes in Boston. You come up here to get this check. Oh, I once saw a Negro laying on his stomach in the in the weeds, reading Latin and Greek, instead of getting up, cleaning himself up, and getting out there in the field and create... And, and, and is like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But I'm saying all that, and that's a story for another day. But I'm saying that to say this, two things. Number one... While he's doing that, getting the check, he's also clandestinely funding challenges to the segregated railroads. Washington's doing that. Now, he doesn't brook opposition. Remember, we talked about this with Herbert Apthecker, the so-called secret secret meeting, Andrew Carnegie, who opens up a personal bank account for Washington, even as he's giving him money on the front. Carnegie, Washington's people, Du Bois and them, because what happens is Trotter recruits Du Bois to be on the anti-Washington side, Du Bois would have been working at Tuskegee. Washington offered him a job, but the offer came after he had taken the offer at Wilberforce and the offer from Tuskegee was for more money, but, but Du Bois said on principle, I can't reject Wilberforce because they offered first. And even though it's more money, I'm gonna go, had it not been for that, Du Bois would have been working at Tuskegee. Washington had the black architects, the guy that built Founders Library at Howard University comes out of the Tuskegee line of architects. The student, anyway, I'm saying I have to say this, Carnegie Hall, Washington's people meet with Du Bois and them, they get together, they hash out an agreement on a lot of stuff. Then, Washington flips the script. Why? Because Booker Washington's thing is, right or wrong, I'm gonna be in charge. He got spies, he buying the black press, he buying up black newspapers, and he is the most powerful Negro in the country. So no, Van Jones is not Booker Washington. If Van Jones is Booker T. Washington, Van Jones' face would be on everything black everywhere because Booker Washington was that dude and they were pumping him up with money. Now, that's why I said, that's one thing. The, The second of the two things is this, unintended consequences. Because some mother and father and auntie and uncle's child, every May graduates from Tuskegee University. Tuskegee, if you are black or white or polka dot or whatever you are, and you wanna study veterinary medicine, There's no better place you can go than Tuskegee University. If you wanna look at innovate, if you wanna look at bioethics in the wake of what happened in Tuskegee, you can go to Tuskegee University. In other words, and while Washington was alive, those black architects, those black scientists that Carver's training, those black pharmacy benefits from, just because you got an idea of what you want us to do with your money, we got our own ideas. And whether it be the Ford Foundation trying to give money out to steer Black people away from protest and struggle to economic opportunity, and then Negroes taking some of that money and creating the Black Studies programs, including the one at Howard that they gave a little money to, the Birth of African Studies Foundation money. They give the money to Northwestern University, and then a little bit of money to Howard now because they're trying to control. But guess what? Those scholars that are being trained, they got their own ideas. So Van, get $100 million? Jeff. A bulletin foot to you, young brother, while you riding rockets to space, cause we all know, as Gil Scott Heron said, you you know, rat and bit my sister nail and Bezos on the moon. you trying to get away, right? we We watch the science fiction. We know science fiction ain't nothing but your fantasies projected into the future. We know ain't no black people in space, cause you're gonna leave us here, or you think you're gonna leave us here. But while you got a plan, we got a plan. You think you can control that hundred million dollars. You think you control civility. But guess what? We're at narrative, and if you dropped hundred million dollars on Karen Hunter, she gonna be like, "Thank you," and then you say, uh, "Now what?" No, I'm sorry, no, you said no, strange, right? <laughs> this is gonna be the problem. But but here, Karen, this is, this is the last thing I say about this in this general context. If you know, you know when the big money philanthropists will want to come. It's when everybody listening, go get their friends and get more friends and subscription by subscription by subscription, it builds too big to control. And as, it, as we continue to do this, what these things often do, just like what they did with Booker T. Washington is galvanize the rest of us to say, oh, really? Hold on, I ain't got a hundred million dollars, but I got a hundred dollars here. Wait, you, you're independent, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, well, I've been watching here. Wait, I ain't got a hundred dollars, but I got twenty-five. You got twenty-five, right? Okay, you you two got twenty five. Here's the hundred dollar subscription. Now, uh, give it to the 12-year-old and do like what Charles White and them did. We don't have enough money for a subscription to the Art Institute of Chicago, but we're gonna raise enough money to send one of us, and then your job is come back, teach the rest of us. Go over the narrative. We had a whole conversation on Charles White. When y'all see it posted, look and see. In other words, when you join narrative, this is the answer to. Oh, Jeff Bezos gave $100 million. We're not, what you doing? we pouring clean glasses of water over here. Come on. And then when they look up and they say, oh, wait, we can't. That's when they come back. Uh, uh, Professor Hunter, can we meet with you? We've got a proposal. We'd like to guide. I mean, we'd like to give you some money. We have some ideas about what narrative. we are like, really? Okay. This is what history teaches us. So, yeah. Good hey, luck, Jeff. Good luck, uh, man. <laughs> we know history uh you know what we are not gonna
0: do because we talked about it already we're building this for a thousand years a hundred years after we're gone that's right so the people will always have something that they can depend on so i'm grateful let's right. w- let's welcome in our special guest uh yeah. documentarian um let me just bring her in uh yep we are here uh she is a documentarian she's actually working on something before we get into the olympics because that's why i brought her on but you were talking about tuskegee and that's how the ancestors are they're undefeated let me welcome
1: undefeated
0: you. great filmmaker deborah riley draper welcome to in class with dr gray car
1: no hey oh, sister Drake, how you doing
0: fine how are you doing i'm so happy to be here with you guys i'm happy to be in class Listen, no,
1: we're in class, you teaching.
0: <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, you, we were talking off mic yesterday about the Tuskegee thing and then Dr. Carr brought up, we just did this whole Booker T Washington. What are you working on regarding Tuskegee and vaccinations and just tell the people what you're doing?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and first, thank you for inviting me to be here. Um, the Ad Council and the advertising agency, the Joy Collective, really wants to ensure that our communities are aware of what their options are and that they're educated around COVID-19 and vaccines. And in a lot of the research, when people were asked, why aren't you getting your vaccine? They said, well, you know what happened in Tuskegee. Um, they couldn't quite say what happened in Tuskegee, but they would say, you know what happened in Tuskegee. Well, what happened? Well, you know what happened. And, and we realized that that um, this hesitancy or and this mistrust while it is completely valid, we wanted to make sure that it's valid for the right reasons and that it exists for the right reasons and that we don't hang our hat on a legacy and a history for an incorrect reason. So uh, the Ad Council reached out and they said, hey, we'd love for you to do a series of public service announcements um, with the descendants. And I thought about it and I was like, this is great. Um, I wanna do a documentary style because I want it to be authentic. I want it to be powerful. I want it to be compelling, but I wanna ask the questions of the relatives, the daughters, the sons, the grandsons, the great grandchildren of the men, the 600 plus men who are part of the United States Public Health Services study at Tuskegee, right? So first it's not the Tuskegee experiment, because actually the Tuskegee experiment was the experiment to get Black men to fly planes. That's the Tuskegee Airmen. That was the experiment. The Tuskegee study was not a Tuskegee study. It wasn't done by Tuskegee. It was done by the United States Public Health Services study at Tuskegee, right? And the men were not given syphilis. In fact, they weren't given anything. The whole study was about the untreated effects of syphilis on the Negro male. So they didn't give them anything except placebo so they can watch them die and study the body. So all of this, these are the facts, right? So we needed to be able to wrap these facts up and present them to people so they would understand. So we ended up doing um, four 60 second spots and a five minute mini doc where we really unpack what happened to these men what the study itself was all about, the fact that it lasted 40 years and so many families were impacted by this. And then we asked the families, given your history and what's happened to you, what the government did to you, what the medical community did to you, did you get vaccinated? And they all did because they said something, Karen, that was so important. They said it would be a travesty for us to have an opportunity to take care of ourselves and not do it when these men had no opportunity and their opportunity of choice was removed. The the privilege to be able to have proper care was removed from them. But the triumph of the story is each and every one of us signed a consent form. Now when we have any kind of procedure done, um, all of our information has to be protected. That's because of the 600 Black men of the Tuskegee syphilis study that was conducted by the United States Public Health Service. As a result of what they went through, so much of clinical research protocol was drawn. The review boards, the IRB, exist because of what these men went through. So it's really important that we understand that they weren't victims. They were victimized, but they weren't victims. And because of what they went through, you and I, we get to sign a consent form. Yes, before you do this, you need to tell me all about it. I need to ask questions. I need to know what's going on. They didn't have that right. We do, and the families do. And they wanted people to know that. and that's what, that's what it's all about. People can um, see it as playing if they go to the ad council. I'll, I'll send you a link so you can share it. But it's really important that before we say, I'm not going to do it because of the Tuskegee study, we understand these 600 plus men and their families and what they went through before, before we attach what we're not going to do to their names and their legacies and what they went
0: through. Now, if you say, I'm not going to do it because the government is, uh, can't be trusted. Yeah, you can say that.
1: That's yes. <laughs> yeah, Because not trust this government. Yeah. That's right. I mean, that's absolutely, I mean, that's what I was going to ask, uh, uh, Karen. How, how much of the hesitancy is uh, attached to not only lack of trust in the government? And as you said, I mean, technically, yes, the Tuskegee study. And yeah, the Tuskegee experiment, as you say, with the 332nd and, and so called Tuskegee Airmen, absolutely. Um, but we know that, in terms of black movement and memory in this country, that phrase has attached see experiment to that really crime against humanity. As you say, they didn't introduce syphilis, but they left it untreated, even after pen- even if their cure for syphilis was found. so how how much of this, how much of what black people are expressing, whether they know that history or not, is, as Karen said, not about the specifics, but about the idea that this government, including, and I know you know this well, it's better than I've stood at her grave every time I go to Tuskegee. Eunice Rivers, the Black nurse <laughs> who is helping these people, you know, these, these scientists, how much of the mistrust is attributed to the fact that you can't trust the government? Well, I, you know, here's the thing. Um,
2: point me to any seminal moment in time in the past 400 years where you can trust the government.
1: Exactly, that's what I'm saying. This is rational behavior. So-
2: well... You know, it, it is rational behavior, but I still think we have to unpack what has happened in the past 400 years because if, if if we look at every year for the past 400 years, then we wouldn't leave our house. We wouldn't eat any food. We wouldn't drive a car. We wouldn't go to the doctor. We, would, we wouldn't order a book on Amazon.
1: Where, well, well, where, we, would vet, we would vet who we did it from. But, I mean, but let me ask you this in terms of the process. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what's your sense of our participation rates right now. Like we were just talking about before you came in, Kay Ivey in Alabama was confronted by reporters who asked her what else she can do. And then she basically shifted the blame to people in Alabama after she lifted the mask mandates, after she banned any restaurants or, or, or businesses from, letting, from have, requiring people wear masks. In a place like Alabama or anywhere in this country, for example, what, what, is, the, what, is, what is the research telling us is the black participation rate relative to the white participation rate. I'm just using black and white cuz these two, you know, are we not getting the vaccine in numbers that are you know, consistent with white folks? It it depends on the
2: geography. It's not a blanket answer because mm-hmm. there are some states where white folks are not getting the vaccine at all. Right. You know, and then there are some states where black folks are over indexing in the vaccine. but right. as a whole, when you look at it, right? there's so many factors um, in terms of geography, access, income, education, all of these things contribute to the
1: decision of will I or won't uh, okay not so like- who, who wants to who, who are you trying to get who are we trying to get this information to? Whose eyes are we trying to get it in front of? I mean, in terms of that demographic. We we want our working
2: African-American families, our middle-class African-American families to, we don't want them to say, I'm going to take the vaccine, but what we want them to do is be open to receiving the information so that they can make an intelligent decision for themselves and their families. What we don't want to see happen, and we've seen this happen in a lot of cases where people are getting the virus because they weren't vaccinated because they were in places that you know we we don't we don't want them to be exposed and not knowing that they're exposed we don't want people we don't want people to get covid because of lack of information about how it works how the delta variant works or lack of information about how the vaccine works like do you know how the vaccine works? Do you know what it does to your body? Do you know what the side effects are? Do you know how it will protect you? So once you have all that information, right? It's like making a stew. Don't shortchange. <laughs> That's the right. right.
0: That's I mean, right. this is the, 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 you know, the, what we're in right now is all about that. So whether we're talking about history, which will give you foundational knowledge to be able to make decisions in the future, the same for your health. I mean, we are all, I love black people. I love people, but I particularly love black people enough to want you to know all of the things And we are too smart to, to make decisions on in a vacuum. Yes. That's right. Thank you for being here. I appreciate that. And I appreciate it. doing uh and and so I, I asked you to come here because you did this amazing documentary that was followed yes. by an amazing book and yesterday i watched the opening ceremony in, in tokyo the olympics and it was you know it was the you know, john legend and keith urban and all these people singing and stuff and it, and, it, and it's a trying this is a, a trying olympics but i want people you know because we're all about foundationally setting the table for where we were yes we are so that we can move forward and understand this moment. So you did a you did a documentary uh, was a while ago because I had you on the show, Olympic Pride, American Prejudice, and I I didn't know I only heard about Jesse Owens, but you you brought forth so many others, and
1: Dr. Carr, of course, knows this uh, history. So no, I had a book, yeah, and then when we get when we get this lift, man, and you gonna get it signed. <laughs> yes, yes, yes.
0: So so tell us a little uh, Olympic history that will. Uh, frame what we're going to be watching this next week.
2: You know, what's really interesting is that in 1936, um, media, of which we are all a part of, really framed the African-American experience in Berlin around a singular, magical African-American man, Jesse Owens, who obtained four gold medals, which was great. And the propaganda was, Jesse defeats Aryan supremacy. Jesse had 17 black teammates. And what's so strange is in all of the documentaries and all the films and all the information and I ran track that I had seen, I had no idea Jesse had 17 black teammates, including two black women, Tidy Pickett and Louise Stokes, the first two Black women to represent the United States in the Olympics. Have, have you ever heard their names, right? You've
0: never heard because of Dr. Yeah. But, uh,
2: and
1: No, no, but, but Pride and, and help. Was that their first Olympics? Huh? Was that their first Olympics? Those no, two that six? was their
2: second Olympics. They were at the 1932 Olympics <laughs> in Los Angeles. That's crazy. <laughs> that was their first international Olympics. That was their first Olympics in front of Hitler. That was their first Olympics in the Nazi stadium. But they were two-time Olympians, 32 in LA and 36. And Ralph Metcalf was on that team as well. And he was 32 and 36. And then, of course, Ralph Metcalf would go on to be one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus. And he would go on to write the resolution for Black History Month in our... yeah. And Archie Williams won a goal in 36 as well. And he would go on to be a Tuskegee Airman and graduate from Berkeley with a mechanical engineering degree and a 4.0. And Dr. Jimmy Laval would get a medal, a bronze medal in the 400. And if you go to UCLA to this day, Louval Commons, people don't even know that LeBow Commons is named for a black man. Jimmy LeBow who's on the mm.
0: 36
2: Olympic team.
0: Come on, come on through with this history. Come on. Yeah.
1: Yes, come on, keep going, keep going. You mentioned UCLA, so you got to name the man.
2: You know, you know, I'm gonna keep going because I'm gonna talk about Mac Robinson. Yes, because and when we talk about the 1936 Olympics, I don't know how Jackie Robinson's older brother is not a part of that conversation because when Jesse Owens is on the medal stand with the gold, the silver's back, so it's not like Mac isn't in the picture. The medals Jesse's here. Max, but they just—they don't even talk about the guy who gets the silver, right? This is Mac Robinson, Jackie Robinson's big brother, in Nazi Germany with a silver medal on on the stands, underneath all the swastikas and the howl Hitler. And this is Pasadena's first—you uh, know—black Olympian to achieve a medal on an international stage. And we don't even say that. And don't we think it's possible? that because Mac Robinson was able to achieve elite athletic status and win a medal in Nazi Germany that that didn't impact his little brother no question so, so when Jackie's like oh my god I'm going to join you know major league baseball and he talks to Mac Mac's like you got this I ran in front of Hitler you got that
1: no you question know? all praise due to their mom who raised their family brought them out of Cairo Georgia Look, you I'm can really of- see her imprint <laughs>
2: on those kids you yes. see, and you see possibility because if you know her story <laughs> she took them on that train in the middle of the night off that sharecropping plantation going to california so she can get a job and bought a house on pepper street in a white neighborhood i got it.
1: You know, and she's like, whatever, this is where I'm gonna buy my house and this is where my kids will live. And you then- that's your next documentary, right? You gotta make that, seriously, because people don't know what you're saying. Somebody right now just heard that for the first time. So go go ahead, I didn't mean to interrupt you, please, but it's just so important.
2: It <laughs> was a single mother with a ton of kids and she was on that plantation down there in South Georgia and she was like, you know what? Mm, this is not gonna be our life. It's, it's not gonna happen. And she took the money she had and the, the plantation owner did not want her to leave. That's why they had to go in the middle of the night to be able to get on the train so they can get out of there. And of course, they went to California because she heard there was opportunity and that she thought that Pasadena seemed like it might be a good place. She had a, some family that was in California already that it might be a good place. And she saved up her money and bought a house on Pepper Street and Pasadena. Um, and now when you walk to the City Hall of Pasadena, you see the big bus. There's one for Mac and one for Jackie. They're both there, same size, equal measure, equal rep- representation because Mac did it first and Mac did it in front of Hitler. And when you come home to your little brother and you're like, I won a silver medal in Nazi Germany. Jackie's like, my big brother's dope, you know? And I'm gonna do something too. I'm gonna do something too, Mac, you know? Cause Jackie ran track too, just like his big brother. So you and had that, and that foot speed, just like Mac did. So, um, so, so I think these stories are important because if hold we...
0: on, Deborah, I just want to reintroduce you, Deborah Riley Draper, uh, documentarian. Um, in the documentary and the book, it's called Olympic Pride: American Prejudice. Uh, on in the wake of that, we have some, you know, Olympians right now that don't want to stand for the flag, and you know, we, we can go to another Olympian uh, two, who raised a fist uh, in Mexico City. But, again, they defeated 17 of them, and there were two Jewish people, too, that debunked Hitler's notion of Aryan supremacy, of white supremacy. They destroyed it. Destroyed it. And yet, we're sitting here today with Mm -hmm. that still over us, as if that didn't happen. Talk about what the media brought away. Again, they they had an exceptional Negro moment, which is what they, we were just talking about that. We're going to give $100 million to an exceptional Negro. We're going to do, we're going to give one Negro the spotlight because that's exceptional. But we can't speak about the the obliteration of white supremacy because now that affects us. What was the media? Well you know, first
2: of all, the Southern, the Southern newspapers, American Southern newspapers, weren't trying to run Jesse or anyone else. Um, they they weren't really covering that. Because if you think about what you just said, we'll give you the one magical Negro, but we're not gonna talk about 18, because when you start to talk about 18, you what you realize is that they they have 4.0's. They're at Berkeley, they're at UCLA, they're at Marquette. They are athletic, they are elastic. They are diplomatic. They know how to handle themselves on the international stage. So all of your Jim Crow rhetoric is debunked, not just white supremacy in Germany is debunked, but your Jim Crow second-class citizenship is debunked too. When you look at that fine cohort of 18, super smart, super athletic, super charismatic, and innovative, because think about all of the things they did. Jimmy Laval comes back and he's like 22 patents, you know, Archie's flying
1: planes,
2: you know, Louise Stokes comes back and creates a bowling league for colored women. So black female athletes will have a place to bowl. So, So they're not just athletes, they work in the community and create opportunities for the community. No one wanted to hear about that. Well, nobody in the so in the white social structure, right? What about the black press? Oh my gosh, what we what we never talk about is that the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier sent
1: reporters. This is the governance structure. Who we are to each other, right? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So they covered it.
2: <laughs> Not only did they cover it, they got on that ten day long boat trip yeah. to Nazi Germany to cover it. The reason why we have such great photos. There are two reasons in the book and in the documentary, you know, the Pittsburgh courier was like, we got this. We're going to okay. let you play by play by play. Chicago right. play by play by play. And the Amsterdam news was there too, play by play by play. And they covered it. They covered it in spectacular fashion. That's the only reason we knew that there were
1: 18. I'm sorry. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry, sis. This is so important because like you said, the foreign po- American foreign policy, they're using them, but you're, are you saying to us that it was black institutions that are the reason you could even make the documentary or write the book? Well, absolutely, because think,
2: of, think about this. The, the Atlanta Journal, I live in Atlanta, the Atlanta yes. Journal covered the white athletes. The Southern newspapers, they had access to what was being wired they chose what they wanted to cover. Wait, they didn't send people? They sent people. And then they also had wire access, but they chose who they wanted to cover, you know, and keep in mind at that time, NBC was on the ground back then. So, and, and this is the first televised Olympic games. So Hitler, you know, he was a technology freak. So they had Two cameras on the ground, closed circuit TV in 1936, so Germany could watch the pageantry of Nazism because the reason he televised it wasn't because of sport, it was because of propaganda. Oh, no question. He had
1: Gerber. a... knew about that, boy.
2: <laughs> it's fabulous. It's a big old opening ceremony. You know, that's the first torch run, complete pageantry. This country is fantastic, right? That's what that was about. And so these papers made decisions on who would be on the front page and when they wrote about them they wrote about darky comes to town sepia sensation that's when they wrote when they didn't talk about them which is why when you open, when i when you watch the film that particular race where the british announcer is calling the film and he's like he is a black. Panther, you know, he, you know, all of the, the, the comparison to animals and everything to dehumanize and not to humanize. So, you know, when you read the articles and they wrote at least three a day, the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago, you know, they're like the striking, fantastic, the strong, the smart, the charismatic, you know, the elder statesman, uh, Ralph Metcalf, the, you know, the airplane flyer, the, the you know they 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 added the adjectives that brought these men to life and, and um the women too right
1: i forget the name of the brother the famous cartoonist i don't know if it was the courier or the defender but there was a cartoon of either louis stokes or tidy pick i don't remember which what they even
2: was, have- was a Chicago defender and it was their cartoonist and he and he did them and 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 this is what we have this is our evidence that they were there you know, the photographs, and really the big evidence was, strangely enough, Lenny Riefenstahl, so a lot of oh, the, he yeah. was Hitler's, you know, filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl, she made those great films, Olympia, um, of the 1936 Olympics, which have no black people in them, period, right, so th- these films have no black people in them.
1: That's, is, is Riefenstahl, she's the one that did the bit, was it Triumph of the, the Big Stadium, for those of you who watch these documentaries, these World War II, do- that's her, yeah, that's her. That's her.
2: She she and to this day, um, techniques that Lenny Riefenstahl created in the 30s, filmmakers are still using to this day. So, okay. so, so, but what she did, she shot a lot of the Black athletes, but it had to be redacted from Olympia. So what what you see in my film are the images Hitler wouldn't allow her to show in her film. So that's why you see Louise Stokes in the stadium, sitting next to Mack Robinson. That's why you literally see Tidy do the hurdles. Um, and, and Karen knows this, but for everyone else, we had the opportunity because of this film to bring all of the families, almost all of the families of the 18 athletes to the White House to meet President Obama and for them to be properly thanked. Because in 80 years, 80 plus years, they had never been invited to the White House which is a customary thing, but these Black athletes from the 1936 Olympics, not only were they forgotten and dismissed, uh, they they didn't get a chance to meet the president. So in 1936, the 1936 families were able to get them to the White House with Team USA in 2016 to be thanked and to be apologized for, for being ignored, um, you know, their contributions. And when they watched the film at the National Portrait Gallery, that was the first time for all of those families to see competition footage with Tidy Pickett in it.
1: Put pick them up, put them down on those hurdles, right? Oh my God, my God! Did, 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 can I ask you about yeah. this? She, um, I went to law school in the late '80s with Marlene Owens, one of Jesse Owens' nieces, and we, of course, were at Ohio, at Ohio State. And you know, a lot of the Owens family, you know, deep ties to Ohio State. And I'll never forget. Leaving Tennessee State where I went to undergrad and I'm sure you're gonna bring that up in a minute with the Tiger Bells and one of the reasons why these two ladies maybe not be as known because they didn't go to Tuskegee or they weren't with Wilma Rudolph and them, but i were never ahead. Yes, so much. The forerunners. That's exactly right. One of the things that I'll never forget learning was how Ohio State treated Jesse Owens after he came back. Could you talk about some of that as a, maybe as a lead up to 68 and how they, how they use Jesse Owens in 68. I mean, what happens to Jesse when he comes back? You know, they don't even let him stay on campus at Ohio State in Columbus. I, I'll never forget learning that. You know, what's so funny is We talk about
2: the 30s and 40s of German propaganda. There's a lot of American propaganda going on too. And as much as the Germans were talking about nationalism, America was talking about isolationism and nationalism itself. And and at that moment, nationalism looked like white supremacy. Nationalism didn't look like integration. Nationalism didn't look multicultural. Nationalism looked like the people who were in office at that time. That looked like FDR. Even though FDR's wife, Eleanor, was trying to <laughs> do everything she could to try to get him to see a better way, he was not seeing it because he needed the, the political votes from the Southern Democrats. But when Jesse came home, He was, you know, he had that ticker tape parade in New York. And, you know, they had the party for all the athletes. And Jesse, like all his other 17 teammates, had to go to the back of the hotel, through the kitchen to get to the ballroom for his party. He couldn't even go through the front door of the hotel where they were throwing the party for him. And um, he was suspended by Avery Brundage. In 1936, um, because Jesse wanted to run professionally to earn money. So they suspended him from the AAU. So he couldn't run um, as part of the AAU anymore, because what Avery Brundage wanted him to do was go run for money, but give the money to the AAU. And he's like, I have a wife, you know, that. You know, I, I need to take care of my family. So they're like, well, you're not going to run then, period. So he had to go to Mexico and run against horses. And, and you know, he had to do all sorts of things to make money, whereas some of his white teammates from 1936 Olympics who did not do, maybe they got one medal, maybe it was gold. You know, they got those fabulous MGM contracts where they can make movies swimming and they could be Tarzan. And, you know, that's what a white Olympians got. They got movie contracts and, and they can do these fun little movies, swimming and Tarzan and this and that. And you know, some of them got jobs at um, networks and some of them got film contracts. He didn't get that. And he was the most celebrated, decorated athletes of those games, but it wasn't a fair uh, distribution of reward, right? So he, he didn't get the Hollywood shine that some of his teammates, his white teammates, got. Um, And he didn't he wasn't able to get the types of jobs that some of the other um, Olympians were able were able to uh, create for themselves. So, you know, I, I, I think I think what we did as a country to Jesse, we do to black bodies. We cheer for that body when it's in the stadium, when it's benefiting us, when it's putting points on the board, when it's wearing um, our name on the back. And then when we come out of that stadium, uh, we we relegate them to being just
1: another Black man or just another Black woman. You I, know? Definitely, I hear that. I mean, although when, when I don't know who we is when it comes to the United States, because I don't, you know, you, I, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but, but how does, um, how does Owens... I think, is is it right, he said, one of the reasons why he went Republican was FDR didn't even nod at him when he came back, but... Well,
2: that's why we took the families to, to, to the President Obama administration. FDR didn't holler at anybody. He wasn't interested in seeing them. You have to remember, he was in the middle of a campaign. So would you invite, in his words, a Negro to the White
1: House in the middle of your campaign? No well, I mean well, well, i mean yeah, you definitely pulled a Joe Biden for sure i mean it is so in other words i'm 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 chasing after these voters that uh, but is it, so how does um owens how do you think that impacted his politics and you know, do you think that had his experiences even trying him trying to kind of keep it together and you know, do you think that influenced why in nineteen sixty eight he allows that same u.s olympic committee to send him in there and tell john carlos and them not not yes
2: well i i i think you know what we have to understand are the politics at play and how america uses black bodies
1: yes yes
2: and how to separate a black community and they understand which levers they can pull so i don't blame jesse owens for what happened but but he was manipulated by the IOC what we have to remember is this Avery Brundage was in charge of the IOC in 1936 he he sat Louise Stokes down he sat the the Jewish athletes down and he was crafting the kind of team he wanted to craft in 1968 you know he the same Jesse Owens that he has suspended in 36, he used to go talk to John Carlos and Tommy Smith and tell them not, not to boycott, not, not, not to do anything that would be disruptive, to do anything that would be political, to do anything that would, um, you know, upset Avery Brundage and think and keep going in 72, Avery Brundage is the same man when yep. those were murdered. He said, yep. well, we're gonna keep going, we're not worried about
1: that. Isn't so that something? He's a and, it t- and it took until this opening ceremony yesterday that to see the Israeli flag, when th- that's the first public recognition in the Olympics, I think of that 72, was that? Wow. It might be, but but, but Avery it, was like, ah, we're not worried about that. And he,
2: mean, was, he was a Nazi sympathizer. He was, he and what people don't know historically, Karen, and this is for you, because I know you love these tidbits, Everyone wonders why Avery Brundage was such a Nazi sympathizer, why he loved the Germans so much. I don't know if he loved the Germans or if he was a Nazi sympathizer, but he was bidding to build the German embassy in Washington D.C. with his construction company. So uh, that's why he was so Back to
0: capitalism. Back to capital, follow the money. Yeah, I don't,
2: I don't know, I don't know if he loved them or not, but he was trying to get the RFP to win it to build the German embassy in D.C. So I that. Personal company.
0: <laughs> and on that note, I know you have to run. Um, and I want to continue to have conversations because you are one of the best mm-hmm. documentarians I know, uh, and because you care so much about getting it right and you care so much about us. And uh, that, that means everything. So Deborah Riley Draper, y'all can follow her at Deborah Check out her whole everything that she's doing and what she's working on. I hope we can do some things in narrative because we have a whole documentary uh, section and I'm tapping you publicly to help us build that out. So and I'm
2: tapping you right back because you know how much I love you, Karen. And um and, and now and now I have a, a, a new friend. Uh, Dr. Yes,
1: Bob. yes. Uh, so, I'll help you do research for the Jackie Robinson for his mom. Yeah. You got to make that one. You know, the old to
2: black women. I, I'm, I'm going to Martha's Vineyard's film festival, um, August 7th. My film 20 Pearls will be screening at that film festival from, from five to seven. That's the story of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. I
1: think so. Yeah. That's yeah. Our figure. yeah. Come on through, AKA's
0: 20 uh, Pearls. Where can people check that out?
2: Um, 20 Pearls is available on Vimeo right now, on Comcast, on Spectrum, Um, you know, just check your local cable guide, it's streaming, and it features our very own Madam Vice President in there as well, Um, so thank you as always, and I I, want to come through on your show and talk about the Olympic Games this week.
0: All right, I got oh, you. Yeah. I got you. We'll, we'll get yeah. the producer to get to you. We we'll make that happen. You'll be on the Karen Under Show. <laughs> yes. uh, so it's gonna be a
2: lot of good games, a uh, conversation that need to be had with what's going on. um And then I want to just talk to you about Naomi. you know Naomi and that whole Megan situation. We need to talk about that. Okay,
0: Definitely. I got you. Definitely. Thanks for Definitely. joining us in class today, Deborah. Uh, yay. My right. Yes. Deborah Riley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love you bye
1: bye right. Bye. see you see you see you soon you wow that you. was amazing
0: yeah so wow i love i love i love that we you know and and as we're putting this together the, the um pressure oh, that we're putting on people to make sure they get it right you know the standard
1: well, well that's the challenge yeah that's the challenge i mean the challenge there is it's evident why we need a framework why does African States frameworks conversation? I mean, the whole we conversation makes it evident when we stop to think about it, we, it becomes much more complicated. I yeah. mean, and the then fact the that defining she... who the we is because I even have to stop
0: myself now. Frequently, oh,
1: we all do. We all do because we, I'm not taking the blame, right? I'm not taking the blame for, well, you know, our country treated Jesse. on. Now you go to hell. Didn't you just hear her talk about the courier, <laughs> the defender? Not to mention the California Eagle. I mean, Matthew Robinson, Matthew Mack Matt Robinson and Jack Robinson, as his family and wife and them call him, Jackie, sports writers, again, to you know, you know, that family is remarkable. In fact, Conrad World, uh, the great Pan-Africanist political organizer, thinker uh, who just recently made transition, his father, Walter World was over the Black YMCA in Pasadena. And so when you ask Conrad, and he talks about like that, that, that black community in Pasadena is very tight, very, very well networked. And in many ways, Jack Roosevelt Robinson, ironically named for Franklin Roosevelt's cousin, Theodore, who's crazy. Um, <laughs>
0: Let me pause there for a second. You know. <laughs> many Black people, and and I know there was a movement in the 70s to, to rename ourselves, which I, you know, I have, there's a lot of value in claiming. A lot of value. A lot of value in that. um, You know, but people were named, you know, we have, we, there, there's that we again. This country pedest- put people on pedestals and kind of framed our heroes for us, right? So there's a lot of you know Black folk last name Lincoln and Washington and Jefferson, you
1: know. So we, like, we made choices from the menu that was in front of us. Right. But as we expanded the menu options, we made different choices. We chose Washington and Jefferson and Jackson because those were presidents. And coming out of enslavement, we had our no last name. So who, who is the most important white man to you? George Washington. Well, then my name is George Washington. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, and even a- bringing in uh, last week, Maceo, Maceo. Oh yeah, Antonio
1: yeah. Macheo, the Bronze Titan, no question.
0: We're, we're piecing together our our history. We're piecing together our memory, but but it's you know it's a piecing together. It's like a quilt, you know, that most of us are walking, mm. the world, you know, kind of like you know our ancestors. In America, those of us who can trace that back, you know, we're piecing it together. And I'm sure throughout the diaspora, people who are in bondage also didn't have last names, you know, so you got people in Haiti with French names from France. You got people in the Dominican Republic with Spanish names and Puerto Rico with Spanish names, but those weren't the indigenous names that we no. came to this world with. And I think, you know, there's there's a lot of exploration and almost a schizophrenia as we start to put this together. And I know for me, you know, because my name is Karen and I, now it's associated with a whole ass uh crazy white woman thing. Well, me is
1: associated like, with Karen Hunter, so that other conversation no, is no, a social no, structure no, I'm a conversation. So bothered by it, But you know, <laughs> <No> question.
0: <laughs> y'all got to stop with this. But names are important and names words are very important, are powerful. And so the we and has as we start to uh, really unpack all of this, there's a lot of work to be done, which is why I want everyone to be healthy too. Well, we, he,
1: to absolutely, absolutely. But we absolutely, absolutely. And for folks who are watching, the question that you, that you asked her about Owens. And then about now in terms of protest, I think it's important for us to kind of put that that last couple of links in that narrative. Bring it. Because it's important to understand, as she said, this isn't about blaming anyone in our community. Jesse Owens did what he had to do coming out of Alabama. Ralph Metcalf is, is well known in Chicago. Now, the fact that we did not know, you know, Louise Stokes and Tidy Pickett. Louise Stokes out of Massachusetts, Tidy Pickett out of Chicago, who, and she ended up being an educator. She was a principal for many years in Chicago. You know, it's because of what you said, you know, our narrative, our movement and memory, if that's the quilt, in other words, our memory, how, what's our collective memory? As you were given that metaphor, it made me think, I wonder if either we could do the quilt or I wonder what would happen if we took the patchwork we have Unraveled it thread by thread and then knitted a full garment. See, because this country's history is a joke. It requires a violence of forgetting. Jesse Owens has to be the four gold medal guy, freeze him on the stand. And when he comes back, you gotta race horses. And Avery Brunt, I mean the Olympic Committee, I mean at least they didn't do him like they did Jim Thorpe, whose name they took, who was at one of those Indian schools in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Anyway, I'm gonna go too far on that. Owens coming forward though. Because remember 36 Olympics is the last Olympics for two cycles, last summer Olympics. They suspend the Olympics in in 1940 and 44 because of the war. They don't have another Olympics till 48. And then you're gonna see a new generation of black athletes come in and those athletes are going to rewrite the game. In fact, um, Coachman becomes uh, the first Olympic medal in 48. And that's uh, that he's black, I mean, she's black. So then what, but, but this, the, the important thing is Rome 1960 is where you see the young cat out of Louisville, Cassius Clay. It's when you see the young sister out of Tennessee and the Tennessee State Tiger Bells, Wilma Rudolph, Mae Faggs, um, um, Waimonia Tyus. I mean, you know, they, so, and you see these black, I mean, he's black, these young black athletes, but they're on the verge of the civil rights movement. Fast forward eight years later, after another uh, 64 and then 66, 68 they they're in Mexico City, Dr. King has been killed. We're not gonna, nah, this is not. So like I say, Smith, Carlos, and Harry Edwards talks about this all the time, but so does John Carlos very much. He's written about this, they've all written about this. These white boys sent Jesse Owens in there to tell them Look, y'all don't need to be up here protesting this kind of thing. Owens is trying to keep it together. He is—he hasn't come out. In fact, one of the great criticisms of Jesse Owens in the black press in the governance structure, and if we can go to science technology category and say, well, what science technology did black people create or use to advance their interests? Newspapers are a form of technology, and unlike now you know, people are reading The Defender, reading The Courier, not as local newspapers, reading the Amsterdam News, reading the California Eagle, not as local newspapers, reading the Atlanta Daily World, reading the Norfolk Journal and Guide, not as daily news, as local newspapers. These are national black newspapers. That's why they got an NNPA. I got a National Negro Publishing Association. In other words, this is our, and then of course, by 68, you got Jet Nebony. and Ebony. You and you've had them for 20 plus years. So, so When Owens goes in, there is a raging debate among, and you appreciate this being a member of this guild as well, the Black sports writers. You got Sam Lacey in the Baltimore Afro-American. <laughs> and you know, he's like, well, you know, these cats need to calm down, but you got the defender with a, on the front page after the black power salute saying black here. I mean, in other words, they are having in the, see, that's the thing about the governance structure. Governance structure isn't about ideological rigidity. We want to have the debate. Let's have an argument. So Jesse Owens, the hero of 36 comes in 68, comes in the room Tell these black athletes. Look y'all, we need to Now here's one athlete he can't talk to because this cat is not in Mexico. In fact, nobody from his team went to Mexico. Remember 1968, the UCLA Bruins are in the middle of their historic 10-year run of national championships. The whole team writes a letter to Johnson. We're not going. And among them is the cat that came out of Power Memorial High School in New York, the great Lou Alcindor. I'm not going to Mexico City. Jesse Owens ain't here. I'm not even giving you the chance to tell me not to protest. My absence is protest. But then if you read Spencer Haywood, he wrote a, 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 a... In fact, Spencer Haywood is in the room that day. He writes about it in his memoir. Spencer Haywood said, I was there when Jesse came in. And I heard John Carlos tell him, man, no, what the hell are you talking about? Jesse Owens says, look, y'all won't be able to get jobs when you come back. He's reliving 36. This is. I mean, this is, this is, this he is was the right he was. He wasn't wrong. No, he wasn't wrong. He's trying to the thing. You're not gonna get job. Carlos says, I can't get a job now. Spencer Haywood said, Wilma Rudolph is in Carlos's ear. Hey, hey, look. No, no, hell, no, hell no. (laughs) In other words, they're having an argument. (laughs) Can you imagine? I know we can both imagine that everybody, these are black people in Mexico City, and this is 1968, which means it ain't just black people in America. There is a global student rebellion going on. There are revolutions going on all over the world. The Cold War is at its peak. They are in Vietnam, United States. It's not even 10 years past the Cuban Missile Crisis. These people not putting up with imperialism no more. So John Carlson, um, Harry Edwards writes about this too, Revolting the Black Athlete. And there's been a whole lot of books written since, but I love the books that have been written and the memoirs that have been given by the people who were in the room, who were there, because it gives us a different perspective. Let me me hasten to a close. Jesse Owens in 1970, writes a a memoir called Black Think, where he's continued to be critical. He's like this protest, you know, I don't think maybe we should do it this way, this kind of thing, but then, Jesse Owens catches so much hell from black people in the governance structure two years later. Jesse writes, and, and, and both of the both of my copies are in storage. Otherwise, I'd show show them to y'all on screen. 1972, Jesse Owens writes another memoir, a three-word title. I have changed. Jesse Owens said, <laughs> he said, Look, any black man. Who wasn't a militant in 1970 was either blind or coward. He talking about himself too. Jesse's like, man, I went in there. I told, man, I told them kids, and then I thought about what they did to me, and I thought about Hitler. He's literally near the end of his life. Jesse Owens said, I learned a lesson. Now y'all understand because just like they freeze Martin Luther King on them steps in 63, just like they freeze John Lewis on that bridge in 65, they freeze Jesse Owens on that metal stand in 1936. But that's not we, that's the social structure. (laughs) You understand, once you even ask the question who we are to each other, you start uncovering what we just heard begin to be uncovered. And even then we have work to do because Jesse Owens himself, we owe it to Jesse look at it through his eyes and see how that resonates with us. But, but, but I do this just, just on the of history of the Olympics, I know you're gonna talk about this during the week when you know, on, 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 on your show, on the show. You know, the Olympics go back to the Greeks. We know that, you know, 8th century BCE or so, they're having the Greek, you know, they have a couple of rituals that come. Then the Romans come. And it's funny because the Romans shut it down. They start having it too. But then the Romans decide around the uh, 4th century of the common era, I don't use B.C. and A.D., it means the same thing. You're still using the birth of Christ. We should tell you right there, everybody in the world don't use them numbers, but we're using them. So around about 390, 392, 3, so-called A.D., the year of our Lord, C.E., the common era, Theodosius, the Roman emperor, bodies the Olympics, no more Olympics. Why? Because he said they're pagan. Because remember, the Olympics were created during a period in Greek uh, ritual calendar of the festivals of Zeus. So they celebrate, it's, it's tied to their way of knowing. It's a ritual, it's basically cultural meaning making. And then you do it for centuries, that's movement and memory. In other words, these categories apply to all humans, but that means they apply to us too. Anyway, Theodosius shuts it down and it doesn't get started again. That's what they call it the modern Olympics until the end of the 19th century. 1892, a Frenchman, Pierre de Coubertin. Pierre de Coubertin, is interested in reviving the idea of international cooperation. What's going on in the 1890s? European settler colonialism has the Western Hemisphere. Now they invading and are trying to take over everywhere else? India, Africa, they can't get the Chinese the way they want. But I mean, all this is going on and what do they do? They create this ritual of games. Those Olympic rings, those rings, those represent the colors of according to him he's the one comes up with it represent the colors of all the flags of the world a lot of places ain't got no flag why because you've occupied them you're occupying army so when you see those colors there are more colors and more flags since then but those olympic rings represent the colors of the world and its empires it's really the west that's driving this and so what you then see of course the first one they have revived they go to greece 1896 in athens they're going to start it again. And that's when you see the modern Olympics born. But the, but the Olympics is basically a ritual reinforcement of nationalism. That's what it is. When you looked at the opening ceremonies the other night, you saw Greece come in first. You saw uh, Iswanti, which used to be known as Swaziland. They changed the name. You know, you see them come in. You saw the fact that there weren't many people in that bowl. Because if you all been following it, it's been, like you said, Karen, it's been the front page of the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. Toyota said we ain't running no domestic ads. In Japan, it's a hot mess. Why? We about to lose money. We done built all these stadiums, nobody's there. the The U.S. the U.S. gymnastic team, you know, we all cheering for our young sister. You know, they moved. They ain't moved in the Olympic Village. <laughs> we not coming in because <laughs> they already had two. This oh, no, we got to quarantine them. Oh hell no! Now y'all know how hot all of y'all will be. All of us would be, if Simone Biles come up, either quarantined, we can't see, you see that look on our face, right? Because the Olympics is high state nationalism. It's high state nationalism. So when you see someone say, I don't wanna hear that anthem, or I don't wanna see that flag, and you flash back to 68 and see what's at state, this is all nation state nationalism. It's one thing when you rep in Nigeria and you get at work to the United States, and I for one am cheering. Why? Because it's all black people I can't lose. And I don't give a damn about that American flag. So I wanna see y'all give that work. And I'm sorry, Bam Adebayo, maybe in four years you'll decide. And you see what they did to, uh, what's the sisters who went to um, uh, Stanford? Chinese uh, Ogunike, her sister, they wanted to play for Nigeria. The Olympic Committee told them, nah, because y'all play for, yeah, because the Olympics is nation state nationalism. They are gonna make you pick a side, and you got all these Nigerian kids, all these Cameroonians. Uh oh, Joel Embiid. You got all these kids because their parents are from there. They can get a passport. Remember, we heard it from Giannis himself. Giannis Antetokounmpo said, "My parents wanted me to get a Nigerian passport, so I got one." What would it mean if the Greek freak came in under Nigeria in four years? You're not gonna like. <laughs> you know what I'm but who are black people to each other the olympics is cosplay for nationalism that's what it is do you understand in four years that the way this trajectory is going i don't care if jeff bezos gays van give van jones a billion dollars what you can't do is make me think the way you want me to think i might take that money and go buy five libraries and give everybody books and in four years these olympics could look very different if the nigerian kids and the cameroonian kids and the jamaican kids and the barbadian kids to say we're gonna run for our countries and that's the direction it's headed in so this jesse owens narrative gonna look very different in 50 years than it does now because that american red white and blue is receding in importance in the minds of people who are expanding their awareness of who we are in time and space and say
0: what you want about young Shikari and the marijuana, what have you. Uh, that was a blow. Because oh, no I have no problem rooting for the Jamaicans. <laughs>
1: no problem. No problem. Just we do it all the time. Yes. Remember yes. months ago, we talked about the great T L. O. Stevenson. Yes. Growing up, we didn't care about Cuba and the United States. We saw this black man in the ring giving out work. Yes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> This cat was in Utah, oh man. But I know we, it's, it's time for us to go. So I wanna mention since today, today is also another uh, important day. Um, the 24th of July, um, 1807, Ira Aldrich, just Ira Aldrich's birthday, the great actor, you know who influenced Paul Robes and so many others. But there's another brother whose name we don't talk about a lot. We have to do a, a you should know a narrative about him. His name was George Vashon, V-A-S-H-O-N. George Vashon, fascinating. He was born in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And I know with uh, Dr. Um, Amon, we're gonna be talking about Hershey, Pennsylvania, which means central and western Pennsylvania. Carlisle is where they had that Indian school that Jim Thorpe was raised and and went to that school. And of course, Jim Thorpe, the greatest Olympian, perhaps of the 20th century, the one who the the committee stripped him of all his medals because they said he went and picked up some change playing professional sports on the side, but anyway, but Sean is interesting, fascinating character. He's born in 1824. He, uh, interestingly enough, he moved to Pittsburgh. There he read and wrote and studied, and he eventually went to Oberlin in Ohio, the first Black person to graduate from Oberlin College. And then, oh, sorry, one of his students was a young brother by the name of John Mercer Langston. When we talked about Langston, John Mercer Langston, who ended up at, at Howard University. As did Vashon. Bashan then started studying in 1842. He tries to take the Pennsylvania bar. He'd been studying with a white judge. They tell him in Pennsylvania, oh, Pennsylvania wasn't a slave state, no. But they're still racist. They told him you can't take the bar because black people are not citizens. He, so Vashon says, really? You know what, it's all good. I see y'all, where you going? George Versailles said, I'm going to Haiti. Let's just pause here. Again, we've been talking about Haiti almost every week. Haiti, the, the play, In fact, there are three new books. I just got them since the last time we were together. Haiti Fights Back, The Life and Legacy of Charlemagne Perrault. This is the last time they occupied Haiti. I said, let me go read up some more on this. Haiti and the Uses of America, Post-Occupation Promises. In other words, this writer writes about the relationship between the United States and Haiti, and then this is the one I'm probably gonna start with because Robert Fatton has written a lot about Haiti. This just came out. The Gods of exceptionalism. This is what, now next week we might have to talk about this: unmasking the national narratives of Haiti and the United States. Because again, look at this. You see, there they go, shaking hands, right? The oath of the ancestors. Who, is so that? White who is no? that?
0: White God. Who's that?
1: Yeah, yes, yeah. so a white god. Yes, represent. But look who you got. You got Simon Bolivar shaking hands with the Haitian. In other words. Haiti was as uh Loren Dubois who, who wrote writes about Haiti quoted um Desalines when he said I have avenged America. In fact, the name of Dubois's book where he opens that with that quote is called Avengers of the New World. So this ain't the vision and Captain America. The Avengers, that's what they call Haiti. <laughs> Haiti with the Avengers. You know, y'all came and kidnapped us. So my man's Bashan is like, Oh, I can't practice law. No problem. Peace. I'm out. So he leaves. George Vachon goes to Haiti. But before he goes, he stops in New York City. He takes the bar for fun. Passes the bar, becomes the first black lawyer in New York State. (laughs) Then leaves and goes to Haiti for two and a half years where he teaches in Port-au-Prince at the university. For two years, he's on the college faculty at the College uh, Faustin, Emperor Faustin, because remember the Haitians still try to come up with a government system. Remember we talked about Faustin becoming an emperor. He became, and then he comes back to the United States, teaches at a number of different places, including in 1867, Howard University started in 1867. The first black faculty member at Howard University, George Vachon. He only teaches there for a year. (laughs) He only teaches for a year. Howard administration, the founders, they can't pay him. So what do they do? His students. The tuition they pay they give that tuition to fashon and that was his salary for that year he was there he leaves there he kicks around a couple of other places and then he ends up at alcorn alcorn so those you mississippi where he dies he's on the faculty of alcorn about four years and the yellow fever kills him now remember that yellow fever then we talking about the age of COVID and this vaccine it's very serious because remember yellow fever is what took out Otta b wells uh parents so that thing in mississippi was serious george fashon passed now he is best known, if at all, in St. Louis. And some of you all of St. Louis know Bishon High School. That's who it's named for, George Bishon. But his birthday is today. So happy birthday, George Bashan. That's somebody else to look up. So
0: it's <laughs> incredible, as always. Let me say thank you. Uh, I, I'm sitting here. My brain is like, is like. Zzz, zzz.
1: <laughs> all, of, all of us, all the time. Oh, oh wait, I'm sorry, Professor Hunter. I should do this. His most, George Fashon is a writer, so he wrote a lot of poetry. Let me read you the last stanza of his poem, Vincent Ogay, who was a quote-unquote free man of color in Haiti. This is just energized. He was a great poet. He's writing about the Haitian Revolution. This is 1850, I think, too, maybe 1856. He's writing about Haiti. He says this, sad was your fate, heroic band, yet mourn we not for yours, the stand which will secure to you a fame that never dieth and a name that will in coming ages be a signal word for liberty. He's writing about the Haitians. Upon the slaves overcrowded sky, your gallant actions traced the bow, which whispered of deliverance nigh, the need of one decisive blow. Thy coming fame, O gay, is sure, thy name with that of low And all the noble souls that stood with both of you in times of blood will live to be the tyrants, fear will live the sinking soul, to cheer. That's Joseph. No, He said, don't worry about it. You ain't gonna get no fame right now. But the day is coming. Thank you for what you did. So we thank our ancestors, Jesse Owens. We thank all of our ancestors. We thank those t- people, that t- those brothers at Tuskegee. We thank Louise Stokes. We thank Tidy Pickett. We thank them. We thank Ralph Metcalf. We thank Matt Robinson and Jack Roosevelt Robinson and their mother. We thank them. Why? We haven't forgotten, y'all. You live the sinking soul to cheer same way I love you thank you
0: I love you too everyone sign up for narrative we got work to do um, everybody we are right now in the throes of the social media platform building but there are documentaries and cartoons and television shows and all of the things that we're imagining this is going to be a 20-year journey I like everybody who's a part of this class if you care if you think that it's valuable at all go get you a subscription to narrative because the work requires your participation. We are not gonna do this by ourselves. We need to do it collectively and move collectively. So I just wanna thank you for um, seeing the vision, Dr. Carr, and in many ways igniting the vision and making it what it is and- um,
1: Your vision, look at that. Narrative, let's do it, let's do it. I've got the black and the red. (laughs) Now, uh, dollar by dollar, we need the green, because guess what? Jeff, that's good, brother. We got the red, we got the black and- the green
0: because <laughs> uh yeah 100 million is cute but what it's is cute. it like when we build it ourselves and are unbossed unbought and we can imagine the world that we want to live in and actually create it because we How have about that? Resources to do it
1: no control no control 100 million dollars is cool 100 million people getting a dollar piece that's cooler <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. On that note, I love you. Have a wonderful Saturday, everyone in, who's listening in class. Hit the yeah. like button, hit the subscribe, and all of that stuff for the algorithms here. Yeah. But we ain't building here. Nah. Ain't with. Let's get nah, there.
1: This is the front porch. We're in the front porch. And pass this on, y'all. Let's keep this going. Yeah. Things are open. And please be safe, y'all. Yeah, you, in fact, Professor I know we got to go, but you said something to me the other day I thought was very powerful in terms of a reason to make sure that we get the unvaccinated vaccinated. Because you made the point to me, and I was like, well, why? And you made the point about the fact that those of us who are vaccinated, you know, if we get it, and you see these breakthroughs, I was reading about that today in the front page of the, the post, the, the breakthrough, the Delta variant, it doesn't mean we can't get sick. It's just that a lot of times we'll be asymptomatic, but you made the point about the unvaccinated, I thought was very powerful as a rationale. Um, we'll be okay. We should be okay you don't want to take that risk get vaccinated but even if we're vaccinated we should be okay but what happened to your mom and them who didn't get it now you think you're okay you took your mask now if she didn't get vaccinated do you really want to be that smart bomb at the family reunion do you really want to be do you really want to find out at church who didn't get vaccinated because you didn't wear your mask in there because you've been vaccinated and you assume because people didn't have a mask on that they didn't get vaccinated. When you when you made the point that it's not for, it's if you're not vaccinated and your niece or nephew is vaccinated, that's gonna hurt you. They can still pass it on. We can still get it. That, that floored me. We can still get it, yeah. except we won't get sick, but we'll give it to somebody.
0: It's all about community, like, you know. Yeah. People, individual rights, and you know, you can't tell me in the, in the science and the government implanting us and all. Yeah, all of that could be true. But the, the truth is, the real truth is, and and be grateful if you haven't been touched by COVID. Be grateful right. if you don't know anybody that has died or gotten sick. I happen to know quite a few, unfortunately. But this variant and the variant that's coming out of South Africa, and I'm just like, I'm thinking about Paula White calling on the angels of from South Africa, huh. Huh from all these places i was like she called the angels of death she didn't even know who she was calling how
1: about that that lambda that's right
0: and 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 what what's around the corner there's like, um, like, yeah, I ain't playing with all of this. So, I, absolutely. you know, the mask doesn't protect you. It protects other people. And it really talks about a mentality of, do I care enough about my community, the people that I say I love? Do I really love them? Because that's an action word, to put on a mask to protect them. Because I can still carry, even though I'm fully vaccinated, right. that can take somebody out. And I couldn't live with myself if I was responsible for somebody else's harm. So that's how I'm looking at it. Do what you want, because y'all are all grown and some of you are not but you know do what you want but be mindful nah. that we don't live by ourselves we live in a in a space and we should want to live in a community of people that care enough about one another to that's do right. that that's it that's, right. um, that's all i'm gonna say about it i love nah, you that's too.
1: the word love you too all
0: right see you next week